This is Mercy Harper, writer for Research Services at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with Kate Steen, founder and owner of Make It Happen Preparedness Services, to talk about safety and emergency preparedness. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. So um, we at APQC talk about risk and disruption a lot but we don't often get the chance to really dive deep into the topic of emergency preparedness, which is kind of too bad because we definitely have lived experience with it. Um, For those of our listeners who don't know, APQC is based in Houston, Texas, and we got hit really hard by Hurricane Harvey in 2017. And uh, fortunately, we already had our remediation team lined up as the storm was starting to hit. So we were only down for about a day and a half, but we did get 38 feet of water in our building and, you know, it was a long recovery. So I I definitely know that preparedness matters and that's why I'm so excited to have Kate on to share her insights. So Kate, maybe you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into emergency preparedness. Well, it sounds like 2017 was a big year for both of us. I remember we were... Uh, competing with uh, Houston uh, in the fall of 2017 because I live in Santa Rosa, California, and that's when we had the Tubbs fire and uh, 5% of the uh, homes in in Santa Rosa burned overnight and 44 people were killed in that series of of fires that all happened at the same time. Uh, But in terms of how this became a passion for me, started way back when I was a young attorney in San Francisco in 1989, when the Loma Prieta earthquake hit. And uh, I lived through that, had, you know, had those images seared in my mind and uh, was involved in uh, a bit of the legal response to that. Two years later, I was working for the Oakland City Attorney's Office. And uh, at the time that the, uh, the tunnel fire hit, and that was one of the first wildland urban interface fires that, uh, you know, really hit an extensive urban area in in Oakland and Berkeley, California. Um, 3,000 homes burned. Uh, 25 people, I believe, were killed. And I was assigned to the team in the city attorney's office that defended the city in all of the litigation that came out of that. So that very much laid the groundwork for uh, my to become hyper uh, aware of uh, you know the emergencies in the area that we lived and uh, the difference that being prepared makes. And so I started incorporating that both into my work and into my recreational life. I um, I got uh, mocked a little bit in my uh, hiking group for always being so obsessed with safety and people started calling me safety freak. So (laughs) I embraced that uh, rather than, you know, took it as a point of pride and developed a whole superhero alter ego with a costume and a cape and superpowers and a theme song even. So, uh, <laughs> and then I, I brought that into the workplace as well. Uh, I, I found that, you know, when the executive director shows up in a superhero costume, you get the full attention of the staff <laughs> when you're talking about safety. So, um, I, 
I said executive director after practicing law for 12 years, I moved into um, senior management in nonprofit organizations and uh, really had an opportunity to uh, put into practice everything I knew about emergency preparedness for the most vulnerable people in our mm. communities. And uh, so did that in for 20 years at a number of different nonprofit organizations. And then in 2017, uh, started this business and um, it was originally just focused on project management generally, although emergency preparedness is always my favorite kind of project. <laughs> and uh, then after our we experienced our, our, our first round of fires in 2017, uh, I realized that my skill set and what the community needed were coming together in a very clear way. Mm. And that's when uh, I changed the name of the company to make it happen preparedness services. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. And yeah, it seems like there's there's a, a never ending slew of reminders that this stuff matters. I'm sure out there in California, new things keep coming up. And we've been dealing with a, a very long emergency in the form of COVID-19. And I think something that organizations have continued to struggle with is navigating the disparities between local and federal guidance, both of which seem to be changing all the time, um, to provide you know clear messaging for their employees. So what would you what would you recommend to folks or some tips that um, they could have in terms of figuring out how to manage that? Sure. Uh, I first thing I would say is always start with the CDC guidelines. Those are the, I believe, best informed uh, set of guidelines based on the science. And then I would say start local. What does your local jurisdiction uh, require? What does it permit? And then move to the state level to see mm. what is required and permitted within your state. Uh, but think of the legal regulations as just a baseline. What your, your real priority is protecting the welfare of your employees and your customers. And you should, you know, set your guidelines according to what is going to allow you to keep doing whatever your function in the world is while minimizing uh, the, the spread of the virus, protecting your employees. Uh, and because you will find that the better you protect uh, your staff and uh, your customers, in most states, I realize there are exceptions to this and you live in one of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that will give your clients and customers a higher comfort level that it's safe to work with you. Uh, and um, that's what you really wanna do mm -hmm. is create an environment where everyone from your employees through to your customers feel safe and feel cared for. It's a really visible and tangible way to communicate your concern, uh, which develops loyalty and will eventually help you with employee retention and even employee recruitment. Mm. Any uh, tips you might offer? Something that occurs to me is there's a, there can be often 
changes that are happening and the employees see it before leadership can get an announcement out. Any tips um, for leaders about communication of, of changes to things, how to do that in a way that makes people feel safe and not scared and overwhelmed? Uh, I think it's well worth having someone on staff who is designated as the COVID coordinator, mm. who is then the um, the focus of both of a two way communication, so that there's you can say to employees, "You've heard a rumor about X Y Z, or you saw a behavior you're concerned about. Take it to the COVID coordinator." Uh, or COVID response coordinator might be a better uh, title for that, that creates a mechanism to reduce rumors and gossip and mm. information from going around. If there's this one point of contact where all the information comes in, where employees can direct questions that they have and, you know, solid you know, fact-based information can come out to employees. That can help a lot. Uh, and, you know, all your communication to your staff has to be frequent, truthful, and aimed at having a calming influence, you know, to help people keep things in perspective and be responsive and the the better a relationship that COVID coordinator can develop with staff, there won't be this information gap between leadership and staff so that uh, staff are going to call that COVID response coordinator as soon as they hear something rather than talk to five colleagues to say, oh, you know, do you think I should tell someone about this? Oh, about what? Oh, didn't you hear so-and-so has, and then the information or misinformation is spreading. But if there's a, an immediate contact they can go to who they know they can trust and who will have good information, that can really um, keep the rumor mill from getting ahead of leadership's ability to respond to it. Absolutely. I love that idea because it also helps um, you know, leaders and managers from getting overwhelmed by all of these different little, little questions. And then they got to talk to someone else to figure out how to answer the question, you know, just cut through all of that with, exactly. with a coordinator role. I think that's a great idea. Um, so another kind of COVID related question for you, um, you know, during COVID, a lot of companies went remote and a lot of folks, managers and employees alike want to keep working this way, at least some of the time, maybe keep a, a hybrid um, part remote setup. But I imagine that changes how you think about safety strategies. So what would you what advice would you give to leaders that are trying to build a safety strategy for a remote, full remote or hybrid work environment? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about briefly about safety generally and then more specifically about emergency preparedness. Uh, even when your employees are working in their own homes, if they get injured while they are working, that's still a worker's comp claim. And of course, you want to do everything you can to, to minimize injuries. I didn't know that. <laughs> you oh, have blown yeah. my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's not that it happens on your premises. It's just, right. just like if 
someone's driving for work and gets in a car accident. That's a workers' comp claim. Incredible. Um, okay. So it is so worth investing in an ergonomic specialist who can do a video, uh, you know, visit tutorial with your employees to get a sense of what their workspace is like and, you know, communicate to the leadership about what uh, each employee may need to have a, an ergonomically safe place mm-hmm. to work. Maybe they need a decent chair. Maybe they need a different keyboard. It is such a small expense compared to the costs of uh, an employee injury uh, and a worker's comp claim. Mm. So, uh, that's an incredibly valuable investment that uh, companies can make with their employees who are working remotely. Um, and then thinking about emergency preparedness, this really dovetails well with uh, what uh, I've been teaching my clients for, uh, for years is that in an emergency, I think larger corporations understand the importance of getting back up and running fast. And they have systems built to to do that. For smaller businesses, FEMA finds that 90% of smaller businesses that are forced to close by a disaster fail within a year unless they reopen within five days. So there is this huge premium on getting back up and running fast. Now, of course, in order to do that, you need your employees. Your employees are always going to take care of their family first before they can get back to focusing on contributing to the business. You can, as a business, greatly reduce that gap between uh, when they're when the disaster happens and when they're ready to come back and focus on work by helping your employees with their emergency preparedness. Uh, You can, um, you know, supply them with, uh, and, you know, the Red Cross has very good, you know, lists available for this with lists of what should be in their go bag and what should be in what I call their stay supplies, which are the supplies they will need to get by for a couple of weeks with no utilities. Make sure that they have a family plan so everyone knows who to, who to communicate with, where they are, if they can't get to their house, where is their assembly point? Where should everyone go to meet up? All those kinds of things uh, that will help them get their family squared away quickly so that they can come back to work. I talk about things like, um, you know, give all your employees the the template for a family emergency plan. And then everyone who brings back a completed plan and just shows their employer, hey, look, we sat down, we did this, it's complete. The employer gives them as a reward for that, a starter kit of emergency supplies. So there's all kinds of ways that you can encourage your employees to have their families taken care of, and then that will make them more resilient in this hybrid uh, work environment. If they are working from home, they are set up to be resilient at home. Awesome. Yeah, I was just thinking, because I was thinking like, well, you know, and I, I most of the time I work remotely. So if I get a message like, oh, you should prepare for this, it's kind of like, okay, sure, I'll do that. 
but providing that incentive of you get something that honestly, people here in Houston know that you need stuff like that. You always need to have that kind of stuff on hand. You learn that pretty quick here. Um, maybe that's like a little less intuitive for some other folks in other parts of the countries, but everybody likes a free freebie. So <laughs> exactly. Another thing I encourage people to do um, since, you know, in our area, uh, the the danger of fire is constant. We may need to evacuate at any time with no notice or maybe six hours notice. You don't want to spend that time in line at the gas station, getting enough gas to evacuate. You wanna be at the front of the evacuation line. So I always encourage people to keep at least half a tank of gas. Think of the halfway mark on your fuel gauge as the empty mark mm. and you know keep at least half a tank of gas and a way an employer can do that is uh you know on a surprise basis say hey we're going to check everybody's fuel gauges today and everyone who has at least half a tank of gas is going to get a prize so, you know, <laughs> always put it in a positive incentive mm -hmm. form rather than a punitive form right you know there are small things you can do that don't cost a lot that can keep preparedness front of mind for people and um, encourage the behaviors that are really going to make a difference in an emergency. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so now I wanted to turn to some of the stuff people might not think of, and I'm sure that you've seen a lot, so you've probably come across a lot of things that uh, folks might not think of uh, immediately. So could you tell us a little bit about some surprising or often forgotten risk vectors that leaders should consider when they're um, building emergency scenario plans? These days we are so focused on wildfire, floods, uh, extreme weather events for obvious reasons. They're you know, a warming climate has more energy in it. We are going to continue to get more frequent and more severe storms. And, you know, the combination of, of drought and extreme weather patterns are going to make, you know, wildfires in the West more and more frequent and severe. So people are very focused on that. And they have, in this area of the world, they've lost their focus on earthquakes. And, you know, certainly you think of sort of the, the states that touch the Pacific Rim as the place where you need to think about earthquakes. There is actually also a huge center of seismic activity in the Mid-South. You know, I encourage people to take a look at a, an earthquake risk map. I did a quick calculation and figured out that a third of the population of the country lives in states that have significant earthquake risk. So it's, um, you know, essentially for all hazards, there's, you're going to have one, or one of two responses. Either you're going to evacuate or you're going to have to hunker down with no utilities mm. for an extended period of time. And you need to have, you know, figure out backup energy supply, food supplies, water supplies, and Sanitation is a big one that people forget mm. about. You know, if the water mains are broken, there's no water coming into your house. There's nothing flowing out of your house either. So thinking ahead to have, you know, just a, a camp toilet type 
set up in your uh, in your emergency supplies is huge. Oh my gosh, that is such a good point. Um, <laughs> another like lesson that I should have maybe learned a little bit better. We had that that uh, the Texas freeze. I'm sure some folks uh, remember that. Um, yeah, and that was the scenario for a lot of people. And we were, I was like, I need a bucket to bucket flush here. Like, do I have a bucket? It's, it's simple stuff, you mm -hmm. know, but mm -hmm. like at the time, honestly, I didn't have a bucket because I didn't need one. Um, and yeah, thinking ahead for all of these scenarios is so important. And when it hits, you have just, you'll be so thankful that you made these um, small things to prepare. Exactly. Um when you were you're kind of getting into that question, you were uh, mentioning about, um, you know, global warming and things like that. And um, we know, you know, at APQC, a lot of organizations are really focusing in on sustainability, but a lot of them are in very early stages with their sustainability programs. They're exploring how they want to build these up, what's included, what's not. Um, some folks are kind of weaving things like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion into this. And um, before I talked to you, I didn't really have this idea, but should emergency preparedness be part of sustainability, do you think? Yeah, emergency preparedness falls into a lot of different parts of an organization, you know, from facilities to HR to, um, you know, the larger scale risk management. Um, I think there's a great opportunity uh, where sustainability and emergency preparedness can meet, which is in, uh, you know, what your source of energy is. Uh, if you can pair, uh, you know, a solar installation with uh, backup battery power, that can, that is an environmentally friendly way and safe way to have backup power in the event of uh, a weather emergency or a, an earthquake, anything like that. So that, that's definitely a part of what we teach is to encourage people to think about, hmm, could I you know, set up a, a solar uh, uh, system where if the power is down, I can disconnect from the grid and run off my own, uh, you know, battery wall or something like that. Um, a lot of people go autumn, you know, when they think, oh, power's down. Oh, well, I'll just get a gas or diesel generator. <laughs> they are, not only do they, uh, you know, contribute further to the problem, uh, you know, by spewing out fumes that are contributing to, uh, you know, climate change. And so you're going to have your response is going to make the underlying problem worse, but they are also really dangerous um, between the noise, the fumes, the risk of making the connection wrong and starting a fire, uh, the risk of storing enough fuel on mm. your site safely, <laughs> uh, you know, especially, you know, here in California where the problem is, uh, is most commonly wildfires. Yeah, exactly how much gasoline do you want to have stored on your <laughs> Oh my God, yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> oh yeah, geez. Oh my God, that's so good. Yes, totally. <laughs> so having, you know, solar power and, uh, you know, big batteries that can um, store that power to get you through an emergency. And that runs everything from, you know, the huge uh, 
kinds of battery that could keep a commercial building going at some level to you know the small uh, um, portable power stations that someone can use to uh, keep things keep the essential things running in their own home uh, you know so much safer to go that route than to uh, deal with all the risks associated with generators um, a huge number of people die every year uh, from fumes from gas generators they're just really dangerous and should be avoided yeah you know, absolutely possible. yes i know i remember every time there's a big you know disaster around here that uh yeah there's there are uh generate people get uh you know the fumes get to them or they they explode and yeah it's like the worst thing you want is to have this thing that's supposed to save you when something goes wrong and then it <laughs> creates even more problems awful mm -hmm definitely an important thing to think about. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the pod. This has been great. Oh, it's been so much my pleasure. I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you. Awesome. Well, once again, uh, this is Mercy Harper, and thank you for listening. Uh, please go to apqc.org to learn more about us and go to makeithappenps.com to learn more about Kate and her work. <laughs>